Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and with me, as always, the creator of the show, our co-host, Tom Chuck. Hey, Christopher. It's another stellar show with a really varied collection of artists. In segment one alone, we have ACDC and Barry White, and yes, that was intentional. The ACDC clips are from 1983 with Angus Young, the de facto leader of the band, and now they've been touring lately with Axl Rose, but we hear that Brian Johnson, who had to quit touring because of hearing loss, will rejoin the band in the studio for their next album. We'll see if that actually happens. We also have a great chat from 1980 with Steve Winwood. I know both you and I believe that Steve is very underrated in the history of music, not only for his solo work, but also for his work with the Spencer Davis Group, Traffic, and Blind Faith. And he talks about all of that in this interview, which is amazing. It's excellent. It's from 1980. He's looking back on his career, but he's also talking about his current music from that time. And we are going to talk about our worst interviews of all time. Mm, We could go on. Yes, and we will. This is one of the more popular chapters in your book, Is This Live? by Christopher Ward, A History of Much Music. That book spawned this segment. So we're taking a lot from that book, but also our own experiences. And we have a clip of my worst interview ever, and it is terrible, but worth (laughs) tuning in for. I I can't wait. ACDC formed in 1973 in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia. The brothers Malcolm and Angus Young were the core of the band, and they decided to take a pass on the glam movement Mm. and go for something a little harder musically, fortunately. Now, Angus, who was the lead guitarist and the official showman in the band, tried various looks, including Superman, a gorilla, (laughs) and Zorro. Before settling on that famous schoolboy outfit, which was suggested by his sister. Okay, even that is a little (laughs) bit weird. (laughs) It is, and that's why I put it in. Um, Their first U.S. gig was supporting Canadian band Moxie in 1977. Wow. There's a cool song fact for you. Yeah. And in 1979, they hooked up with Mutt Lang to record their breakthrough Highway to Hell. The death of vocalist Bon Scott in 1980 caused the band to consider breaking up, but they ended up hiring Brian Johnson and continued with Mutt Lang as producer on Back in Black. Okay, Christopher, so let's think about this for a second. So, in 1979, they produce Highway to Hell. Bon Scott dies in 1980, and in the same year, they pick up immediately, hire Brian Johnson, and record Back in Black. Like, that is really prolific for that moment, right? They're dealing with so much, and yet they still end up producing what is one of the biggest selling albums of the 80s. Well, I presume you're not talking just about the strategic logistical aspects of this, but also the psychological ones. They had a lot of support um, from fans who wanted them to continue, Mm -hmm. including Bon Scott's family. Mm -hmm. So that album went on to sell over 50 million copies, making it one of the best selling albums of all time. One that has appeared on many best ever lists since. Critics and fans loved it. With the possible exception of Robert Christgau, oh, who not said, him again. Yeah, you're going to like this quote. Lead singer Brian Johnson sings like there's a cattle prod at his scrotum. Quote. <laughs> <laughs> you know who would love that quote? Who? Carly Simon. <laughs> oh, you know what Carly Simon would like even more? If the cattle prod was used on Robert Christgau, because he took some bad <laughs> shots at her as well. So at the time of the interview, the band were gearing up for a show at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto at the time of this interview in 1983 with Angus Young. So how's the road treating you, Angus? Ah, good so far. I haven't grown any. Uh, oh, that's right. Well, how tall are you anyway? 
Now about five two. I guess it fits in with the schoolboy image. That, uh, it does. It also fits in with the job. None of us got hired unless we were around five foot two. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So what, you just come over to North America? Has this tour just begun recently? We uh, started in October, uh, about the 11th, I think. Mm-hmm. We started off in Canada, but on the other side. We started off in Vancouver, and then we went down the, uh, the west coast of America, and then we've done the middle, and now we're on the east side. You got a new drummer this time around, Simon Wright. Yeah. What led to the, the the departure of Phil Rudd? His choice, or? Yeah, well, he was basically a bit tired from the road, you know, and he he just uh, had a new baby and everything, and he thought it was time he was staying in one spot all the time. So he decided he would uh, do that. So he, is he more or less getting out of rock and roll for the moment? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Ah, yeah. It seemed like kind of a strange move because, of course, ACDC are you know doing so well at the moment. That's true. <laughs> so, the real story about drummer Phil Rudd not being in the band at this time was because he and Angus did not get along, and their dislike for each other reportedly led to fights. And uh, we're talking physical <laughs> altercations. And so, Phil would not rejoin the band on stage until 1995, and just in the last few years, he was let go from the band for some very ugly legal issues, but he's said to have cleaned up his act since then. So that's a crazy time, and Angus is surprisingly pretty diplomatic about that whole situation in that clip. He is. He's very measured in his comments. (laughs) He also talked about how audiences respond to the band. We've been doing pretty good. We, we have that sort of following. They're very sort of loyal and they all come... Either they either they love you or hate you. Either come <laughs> throw bottles at you or come to love you. <laughs> I hope you're getting mostly love. Ah, uh, both. Doesn't matter. <laughs> you're dodgy enough to get by the bottles now as it is, anyway. Yeah, well, that's how I learned me act. <laughs> that's why you move around on stage so much. That's it, yeah. That's right. I guess that goes back to the days in the pubs in Australia then. Yeah, a lot of that from that, you know. When, when the range was a little closer and they could hit you with those huge beer cans you have down there. That's right, yeah, the big foster cans. That's yeah. right. Okay, it's so funny. So here we are, and this is, what, 83, and they were very big back then. Because I remember when the Flick of the Switch album came out, and the, you know, for those about to rock and all that. But they still had no idea that this thing was going to go on for at least another 20 years, actually 30, and they would still be huge. They would not even be able to kind of conceive of that notion. Do you think back then? No, but remember, they were, at the time of this interview, a good 10 years into their career, so they mm. were probably amazed at their longevity even then. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you saw any of those shows. I, I saw one of the 80s shows, I think it was a couple of years after the interview, mm-hmm. um, at the Gardens, and it was killer. It was just one of the best rock and roll shows I've ever seen. Really? I've never seen them live. I don't know if you're going to get a chance now. Yeah, yeah, who knows? I guess if you did, it would be with Axl Rose <laughs> singing or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Ouch. Mm. So in the interview, Angus was was a little skeptical about the idea of an Australian invasion. I know you're Scottish originally. I am born there. Right, but you've been uh, in Australia for some time and would definitely be considered a, a part of the leading edge of the Australian scene that's uh, taking the world by storm, it seems like. Are, are you one of those people who sits back and is kind of bemused by this whole Australian invasion thing? Uh, <laughs> it's not really. I don't think it's an invasion. I just think it's you get it from uh, any country, you know. One one minute Britain's got a lot of bands, the next minute you know you get a lot of bands from Canada, you know, mm-hmm. and then it just sort of goes around. You know? I mean, I've seen a few few different places, few different invasions in my time. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you can see why there's this view of an Australian invasion at this point. Because this is 1983. You have in excess air supply, really early stuff by Midnight Oil. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about air supply in a second. We also have Men at Work and Real Life. Remember Send Me an Angel? I love that song, actually. So there no, was a real... Well, you know what? I'll sing it for you. No, I, I remember it now. <laughs> There you go. Some great stuff from ACDC from 1983 on Famous Lost Words. You know, Tom, I'm always happy when I look in my email inbox and there's all kinds of new stuff from you that I get to listen to. Last night, there was a surprise for me. (laughs) The heading on the email was, A Quickie with Barry White. (laughs) And I just thought... Oh, my. Yeah. Well, in broadcast lingo, that means a quick segment. But yes, I kind of knew what I was doing when I wrote that. So Barry White, great R&B artist and a really talented producer in himself. So it is funny because in a way, I think some people see him as a bit of a novelty with his great big deep voice Mm -hmm. and the way that he uh, projected that voice and the way he communicated. But he was an extremely talented producer, arranger, musician. Yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, he did some very original work with that Sounds of Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and the Love Unlimited Orchestra. Yes. I mean, even the name sounds kind of funny in retrospect. But in terms of marrying classic pop melody sense and arrangement along with kind of disco grooves, I think he was a a real uh, pioneer at that point. I agree. Like him and like Van McCoy, that Do the Hustle. And Isaac Hayes with the theme from Shaft. Like they were doing, they were doing really deeply soulful stuff, but also it was kind of disco too, right? Yeah, exactly. And it was great. So this first clip, (laughs) remember... This is the early 70s we're talking about. So Barry White is a real bit of a ladies' man, and he believes that he knows why he can write so well for women when he writes his music, why his music appeals to women so much. Let's have a listen. Woman is more serious about love than men are. And uh, you'll find some men say, well, I'm just as serious as woman. Yeah, but it's such a minority. It's always the woman that wants to fall in love and be with one guy and one guy only. So I have to direct my music to them. I have to, because they understand it. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Uh, And this other clip, this other clip kills me. So, Barry, as we know, like to talk nice and deep. I'm not even, there's no point in me even trying. Here he explains kind of how he did that in the studio. The rap, uh, all of my words of talking happens right at the studio. You can't write that. There's no way in the hell the hell you can write you can write those kind of lyrics. You have to turn the lights down and close your eyes and put a woman right there in front of your face or in front of your eyes that you feel that is that perfect woman and just start rapping. I just put myself into that mood, man. That's why I said as a singer, there's another side. It just comes to me, you know, it just I can't explain it, man. It's one of the things that you can't explain. You just you're in front of that microphone, and you know you got to say something. It's got to make sense. It's got to be sincere. And you just open your mouth and let the, somebody somewhere speaks for you. So here now is the big hit from the album. I got so much to give. Entitled, I'm gonna love you just a little more, baby. <laughs> there you go. Man, I'm gonna love you just a little more, baby. That's Barry White, and just another one of those performances that he was so well known for. Fantastic. This is Famous Lost Words, and that is Steve Winwood while you see a chance from 1980. Christopher? Tom, Steve Winwood has had nothing short of an extraordinary career. 
Now, he may be just a bit shy of being a household name, like a Phil Collins or an Eric Clapton or other contemporaries of his. But for me, his accomplishments speak for themselves. Hits that he co-wrote when he was in his mid-teens, a much-loved and influential band from the 60s and 70s, membership in a one-off supergroup with Eric Clapton, and a stellar Grammy Award-winning solo career. I mean, come on. He joined the Spencer Davis group at age 14 Hmm. and had hits with Gimme Some Lovin' and I'm a Man. I mean, he co-wrote those songs. Yes. And the vocals on those songs are incredible. Those vocals could peel paint. They're like raw rock and roll. And it's hard to believe that he was as young as he was when he did those vocals. And man, I know he still plays those songs to this date because you can't have Steve Winwood in a live setting and not do Gimme Some Lovin'. I'm with you, bro. Yeah. He left that group in 1967. By the way, he was still only 19. And he formed Traffic, who recorded eight albums. The supergroup I referred to was Blind Faith, whose most memorable song was Can't Find My Way Home, a Winwood original. Mm -hmm. And along with all of this, he was a musician that other musicians turned to in the studio. He played on records by Jimi Hendrix, B.B. King, Lou Reed, Robert Palmer... George Harrison, Phil Collins, David Gilmore, and so many others. It all adds up to an unforgettable body of work. Hmm. This interview from 1980 comes around the time of the release of his second solo album, Ark of a Diver, which includes When You See a Chance, and the title track. Turns out he was the only player on the album. Well, it's just something I've always wanted to do. I I, I always used to mess around with machines, uh, and... um, you know, I get very single-minded and stubborn about these things sometimes. I, I don't think I'm going to make another album like that because, uh, for one thing, it took too long, and uh, for another thing, it was, you know, it was too uh, it was it was too much involved. Really, it's something I wanted to do, but now I've done it. I'm glad I did it. You know, it is funny, Christopher. You and I have spoken about how some of those synthy songs just don't hold up today and I think musically while you see a chance suffers a little bit from being too synthy but it is still such a great pop song and it's got that I don't know what it is that euphoric chorus that that when it builds to well you see a chance it just builds so beautifully and it just shows the talent of his abilities and his songwriting well you know that's an interesting thing you point out because there is an almost spiritual, euphoric quality to some of his work. I think yeah. of Higher Love as yes. being maybe even the best example of yeah. that. Christopher, do you know who sang backup on that song? I do not. Shaka Khan. <laughs> there you go. Cool song wow. fact. Yeah. Just snuck one in there, huh? I did. Anyway, um, yeah, he was the only player on that whole record. Yeah. That was a lot of work. So we're back at the Ark of a Diver album from 1980. He played every instrument, and he said he would not do it again. He talks about a lot of things in this interview. He talks about leaving the Spencer Davis group at the peak of its success. Against all opposition, I suppose I left Spencer Davis because, the, you know, the Spencer Davis was just kind of gaining success, and it was a bit of a... Um, uh, it was... I was a kind of advised and told that I was mad to leave the group and in retrospect I probably was uh, but I felt at the time that I wanted to do something that was more personal it wasn't just in a kind of rhythm and blues mode you know and uh, in fact whilst I was with Spencer Davis I, I met the guys in traffic uh, Chris Wood, Jim Capaldi and Dave Mason and we were discussing for a long time uh, in fact before I left 
Spencer Davis what uh, what kinds of things we wanted to do, you know, how it w would be different from Spencer Davis, and uh, I think that was necessary to make sure that we <laughs> that we didn't make too many mistakes because uh, the, the pressure was on, I suppose, at that time to come out with something that was. Uh, um, at least as good. Now, Winwood, despite the fact that he was the only player on Ark of a Diver and how musically gifted he is, he still relishes the process of collaboration. We decided in, in Traffic that it was going to be a, a collaborative band. We, we wrote all, all the, the, the stuff together and we, everything we did, we'd kind of generally discuss uh, it almost, you know, by committee, I suppose you might say. And, and, and uh, fairly early on, um, we ran across problems with uh, Dave Mason. He didn't want to work like that. He wanted to write his songs yes, by himself yes. and bring them to the band and say, this is how I want to do the song. I mean, um, it's, it's fairly obvious that, uh, you know, now that there's no... Um, that either way can obviously work and, and does work work well. But we decided that we wanted to, to like, work together on things and he was fairly unhappy about that so uh, he he then um, left the group went to live in in california and uh, so we we came over as a trio a fairly strange type of trio he really was a collaborator and dealt with so many people over the years didn't he and he went on to find a new collaborator in will jennings i think higher love was one of their songs he co-wrote tears in heaven as well Really? And he also co-wrote Up Where We Belong, which won him an Oscar, I believe. That's not Buffy St. Marie? Uh, both of them. You're just full of good news today. Well, and I hope what I said was true, but I am 90% sure that it is. <laughs> <laughs> One final bit of Winwood. He talks about the formation of Blind Faith. Blind Faith was put together as a band fairly innocently, really. Um, we just wanted to start a band. Um in a kind of normal way, but things just overtook us. I think but due to the, to the uh, hugeness of cream and the thing that, that seemed to be the, the biggest problem was that there was a certain expectation from the audience. And um, it, made, it made it very difficult because um, whatever we did, this expectation was there and uh, we couldn't really get around it. Um, and that can be quite disappointing, you know, uh, because it means that whatever you do, however you play, you can't really, you're, you're not getting a true feedback. And, of course, the only way to, to, to get over that is just to continue making records and, and, uh, and do gigs for kind of a year or two or something until people say, well, uh, that's what they were, that's what they're really like you know that's what and, and people get used to it okay so there you go steve winwood from 1980 but he's talking about blind faith that's 60s supergroup so what is a supergroup so if you're new to listening about you know older music a supergroup is basically when really famous musicians get together to form a new group think of asia in the early 80s and there's think of buffalo springfield in the late 60s the Look traveling like, wilburys the traveling wilburys <laughs> there's a great example right there but what would a supergroup today look like so what would happen if let's say Ed Sheeran and Adam Levine joined a band with perhaps John Mayer like they're all big artists <laughs> And wow. And if those three teamed up, 
the expectations from all of their fans would be really high, but there's no guarantee that it would work. Or think of maybe Taylor Swift teaming up with Keith Urban and Casey Musgraves. <laughs> Right, so I'm kind of and Adele. I'm, right. <laughs> okay, you're throwing you're throwing a curveball in there. I'm actually talking seriously about that amount of talent in one group. That's what Blind Faith was. They were really accomplished, popular musicians teaming up to create something. So there's a lot of talent in that group and distinctly strong personalities. And also, you know, think of hip hop. There's a lot of great collaborations in hip hop. So the so the concept of the supergroup, you know, goes back to the '60s. And by the way, that debut album from Blind Faith had one of the strangest and most wildly inappropriate album covers of all time. Don't even bother looking it up. You'll just want to look away. Trust me on that one. So, Christopher, before we finish this conversation, Traffic, a medium size band in terms of popularity but a really big band in terms of influence on other bands. And do you think that they get their due today as to how influential they were? I don't, Tom, and I agree. I mean, for me, when I was a young musician and writer, I mean, I just wore the grooves out on things like the low spark of High Heeled Boys. Mm -hmm. I mean, and John Barleycorn Must Die. I mean, those... Those are phenomenal albums. The musicianship is amazing. The songwriting is unique. To me, those records still sound really, really good. Mm -hmm. So no, they didn't get their due, I don't think. Absolutely. Steve Winwood from 1980 on Famous Lost Words. You know, sometimes, Tom, it all goes off the rails. It sure does. For a lot of different reasons. And you know, when it does, we're talking about interviews here, when it does, it's a horrible feeling. But it's also a great story many years later. Well, and it's, I think, really entertaining <laughs> for the listener. For sure. In a lot of cases. Yeah. I think sometimes, too, it's like there's a threshold. Yes. In other words, they've heard something like this, and you just hit the magic number of oh. 100 times that month exactly. or that week. You yeah. know? I mean, I, for example, I mean, Denise Donlan told me about interviewing Chris Isaac, and he was a problem child to mm-hmm. interview, because I talked to him as well. Yeah. But... I think she made reference to um, Elvis because of some other thing that we were doing related to Elvis. And um, he took it as meaning that she was comparing him to Elvis, which a lot of other people had very recently done. And he, like, unclipped his microphone, threw it to the ground, and walked off the set. right. And I've read that story in your book. Your book, by the way, is called Is This Live? The Early, Wild Early Years of Much Music, The Nation's Music Station by Christopher Ward. It's excellent. And right now I'm holding my finger open to the worst interview segment. And that's definitely <laughs> Well thumbed, I'm guessing. Right, for sure. Oh, there's so many dog ears on this thing, right? Now, it's funny because I interviewed Chris Isaac too. And I had a pretty good interview with him. But near the end, I said... Uh, I said, Chris, you know, you're a funny guy. Do you have any jokes that you can tell? Just tell me a joke. (laughs) I just want to hear one joke because a lot of rock stars at the time were telling jokes. I remember reading a bunch and it was just funny. It was almost like a viral thing that was happening among rock stars at the time. So I said, Chris, do you know any jokes? And he goes... It's not about telling jokes, Tom. And he he really became sour in that moment, Ooh. and it made me feel bad. Like, and it was it, it was like he ended the interview right then and almost tossed me out of the hotel room. And it was just <laughs> it was just one of those things where you're going, you know, you don't have to be such a beep about it. You can just, you know, you can just say, "Oh man, I can't think of anything right now." But that, you know, great question or whatever. Well, there's some epic bad interviews that I've known about. I think one of the best Steve Anthony can lay claim to because he was interviewing two of the Ramones and Joey threatened to slit his throat with a pair of scissors. 
live <laughs> on television. How very punk. Yeah, I mean, that I would treat as a badge of honor, but sure. and I think Steve does too. <laughs> Good. So he, but was it fun at the time or was it just? Yeah, being... it was fun. Oh, okay. It was fun. Okay, good. Um, so a name keeps coming up in the worst interviews section. Which of, one? <laughs> of your book. Well, there's one name that comes up more than once. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, it's my worst interview too, or my worst interview experience. Right. And it's Gene Simmons. Yeah, it was funny because two of the uh, women who I worked with, um, Lori Brown and Erica M., when I asked about their worst interview, they did not hesitate for a nanosecond. It was like, oh, I mean, it was almost like they were reliving the repugnance of the moment. (laughs) (laughs) So then they both used the word misogynist appropriately enough. It's true. Yeah. Well, as we will soon hear. Yeah. Um, And um, I guess with Lori's interview, he said, she asked him something like, well, what, what is it you really want? Uh, from women, and he says something like, "Well, I want them to lick my boots or something to that effect." And it was, t- I mean, clearly he's just going for the most shocking thing that he can think of. But at what point is it disgusting, and at what point is it just entertainment? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as you know, much to your chagrin, Kiss is one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, and so, and so, meeting him was a real thrill. But then, a real thrill. But then I met him. And, oh. <laughs> and so what happens is he comes into the station and on that day, you're going to actually hear some of this and uh, Adam's going to play this clip for us in a sec. But on that day, they said, we can get you an interview with Gene Simmons. And of course, his reality show, Gene Simmons Family Jewels, was really hot at the time. And they did say he's promoting an energy drink, so he needs to mention it. <laughs> well, he kept repeating this energy drink's name on the air, like, Probably probably 17 times in four minutes. So how much uh, free advertising does that represent? Oh, oh, <laughs> tens of thousands <laughs> That's of dollars, what I right? But he was such a jerk doing this that it, it, it didn't come across well at all. And then, of course, it's some of the remarks that he made, okay? So, Adam, I want you to play this clip. It's Gene Simmons in conversation with us. It's a very short clip, and it's just kind of highlights of his worst moments. And you'll see what I mean, and you'll see what Laurie and Erica were talking about when they were talking about Gene being a misogynist. So have a listen to this, and just a note here. Someone made the awful mistake of giving Gene Simmons a squeaky toy as we're introducing him. Oh, God. But his own squeaky toy. Wow. I've I've always wished for uh, ladies' beautiful parts to have squeaks and, you know, honks. You squeeze the right one and go, ah, ah. Would you like to introduce the ladies who are with you, or do you even know who they are? No, no, no. Isn't isn't the proper poetic notion of waking up in bed with somebody whose name you never bothered to learn? Come on. What's your name? I don't care. Just let's enjoy life. What what do names mean? I would think so. Stop talking. What brings you to town, Gene? I'm glad you asked me, because Uh, if you didn't, I was going to tell you. I knew that. You see, early in the morning, you should all find out how to start the day right. Grab a hold, a two-fister baby, grab a hold of Frank's energy drink, because I will tell you, it's not only a better tasting drink than all the other ones, names of which shall remain nameless, but it's actually pasteurized. Put your greedy little hands on your first, I'm going to break your cherry now, on your first Frank's energy drink. And the, what you do is you put it to your lips and you have to swallow. Gene Simmons 
classy as always. Okay, so the interview, like I felt horrible after that interview because I was one of that advocated to have him on, right? Because we don't play Kiss music on the station anymore. It's been years. And so to have him on and for him to be like that. And then he posed for pictures with a lot of us. And whenever he posed with a woman, he would grab the the woman by the small of the back and thrust her into his leg. Like he would kind of almost make them grind up against his leg. And it was awful because the women were happy to meet this big star, but startled by how grabby and forward he was. I was just shocked. Like, I'm I'm not a big guy. He's a big guy. I wanted to take a swing at him. Wow. I have to ask because, I I mean, I'm all for shining a light in dark places. But are we, by playing a clip like that, in any way, not condoning, but let's say glorifying might be the term, um, the attitude that goes with it? Um, I mean, you you hope that, of course, what we're doing is entertaining mm-hmm. and maybe edifying in some ways and interesting particularly with the you know the historical perspective mm-hmm. but a misogynist is a misogynist and that's a disgusting thing to say no matter what era you're talking about right should we be playing it i would be glad to have a listener comment sure well uh you know message us on facebook at famous lost words or on twitter at famous lost pod that's an excellent point you know because we were talking about worst interviews i definitely wanted to talk about gene and the fact that he was mentioned by laurie brown yes. respected journalist uh erica m longtime much music stalwart um also myself and i'd actually met him i believe that might have been the second time i met him the first time he was okay he was fine but he kind of like he just kind of amped it all up for this particular visit and it's no accident that we're all saying the same name when we're talking about our our worst interviews or the people that we were the most disappointed to meet. So I wanted to run that as an illustration of why I felt that way, because it's so vivid, right? It is. And I think there's part of me that takes a certain amount of glee taking him down a notch for what he's saying and Mm. to shine the light. But, you know, who am I to do that? Maybe you're right. Maybe we shouldn't be playing something like that. Anyway, it's a good question. Let us know what you think by following us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words. Christopher, let's continue our conversation about the worst interviews we've ever been a part of or know about. We just talked about Gene Simmons from KISS, who not only seems to offend anyone who talks to him, he's now in a vicious feud with former KISS bandmate Ace Frehley. You can find all the details of that on Google because I do not want to get into it. It's ugly. I've also talked about how Def Leppard were not amused by the fact that I once called them a power ballad band, and it took me several minutes to get them back on my side. Thankfully, I did. Maybe one day I'll play that part of the interview for you, but not just yet. And just last week, our friend Roger Ashby talked about how Gwen Stefani... Sorry. (laughs) Okay, that's interesting. That's an interesting mistake. How Gavin Rossdale did not like being called Mr. Gwen Stefani. It was a bad moment that put a chill on the proceedings, but made for a great story afterwards. And I know Roger and I both tell that story all the time. There are a lot of other (laughs) bad interviews. Oh, sure. For multiple different reasons. And, you know, the other artist that got mentioned more than once was... Mariah Carey. <laughs> uh, she'd been interviewed by Ziggy, who referred to her, I think it was like, was it 25 pieces of Louis Vuitton luggage or something like yeah. that? But the funniest quote, and I think you probably have it at hand, comes from Master T, uh, Tony Young, who um, interviewed Mariah 
and had a very funny perspective on all the handlers that she had with her. Uh, This is what Master T says in your book. You don't mind if I quote your book? Please. Okay. I never wanted to sit down with the artist and have small talk. I remember I was forced to do it with Mariah Carey. The longer I was there, the more irritating I found her. (laughs) They were dusting her cleavage. During the whole commercial break, I had to watch the process of her being pampered. She had a shiny cleavage, so they dusted her up. She had to go to the washroom and had to turn her mic off, and there are four people scurrying around. One for the toilet paper, one to lift the lid. <laughs> okay, we have to have Tony in here, Master T in here, so. to talk about that very moment. Wow. I have one other that's also chronicled in the book. It was a, a band called the Jesus and Mary Chain, um, and they're still around. They had a, mm-hmm. they had a moment yeah. um, back in the 80s, and um, they were two brothers, the Reed brothers, uh, and they were Scottish. And uh, I remember... Uh, they were very soft-spoken, and uh, I found it very hard to hear them, so I leaned in, but the accent was too much. So I would ask a question. So, you know, um, how are things going on the road so far? Oh, Christopher, those fathers the guitars on the stage, my brother and I are playing the back of the fathers. I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, I can't keep asking him, what, excuse me, could you repeat that? So I would just wait till he stopped talking. And then ask the next question. <laughs> <laughs> it's like interviewing someone who's speaking a completely different language. And you're um, just waiting. Yeah. And then here's the here's the the kicker on the story is that I was talking to uh, a gentleman named Kevin Shea, who's an author and, and was at the time of working as their rep uh, at one of the labels. And he said, oh, he said, I remember that interview because I brought them. And they were walking along Queen Street. And one of them stopped in front of a comic book store and looked in the window and was admiring the comic books on display. And the other one went, you like comic books, you know, you're, you're full of crap, and proceeded to like start pounding on his brother. And they had a rolling on the ground fight that rolled them in front of the uh, streetcar <laughs> on <laughs> Queen Street. And they, the driver had to come out and drag them off the tracks. And uh, by the way, they had been drinking. And um, then, then they proceeded directly to my interview. So I, I didn't, at the time, didn't know that that was the prelude to my, to my Oh, interview. so they'd, al- they'd already beat the stuffing out of each other just before they rolled up. Mm-hmm. Maybe the one had a fat lip. That's why you couldn't understand what, what he was saying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's th- let's go with that. You know, the funny thing is, is now that we've had this conversation, it's going to prompt a whole bunch of worst interview moments that we've had. I've al- you've already spoken about Elvis Costello, although you've rethought that interview since. I've already told you about interviewing Jewel when I thought I was well prepared and all that. And every question I, I asked her that had some sort of um, information in it, she would say, well, I don't know where you heard that from, but here's my answer to your wrong-headed question. And it was awful. Like, I, I hated it. We've talked about that before. But there will be other moments that pop up in our minds about worst interviews. And we'll share and them. And we will share them for sure. Oh, hang on, hang on. I'm just getting Lori Brown back in here. Lori is your former colleague from Much Music and host of her own podcast called PonderCast. Get your headphones on, Lori. We spoke to Lori a few weeks ago about her wonderful experience with David Bowie. Now, Lori... You're also on the record saying that Gene Simmons was perhaps your worst interview subject. Is there anyone else who you just had a terrible time with? Lou Reed. Oh, Lou really? Reed, the absolute worst. It I could never get him to talk about anything. He sat there and glared at me, and it was awful. 
And I kept going back like a fool, but I had this competitive thing, <laughs> and I was started to believe that what he did was he did, gave such bad interviews that the person would never want to interview him again because he didn't like it. And then finally, after my fifth interview with Lou Reed, I got a great one with him. Wow! And it was because I, I, I decided I wasn't going to be intimidated by him anymore. And I asked him. He was singing September song. By Kurt Vile, right? And I said, Lou, how does it make you feel when you sing September song? And he goes, How does it make me feel? And I went, Oh sh! Here it comes. <laughs> how does it make me feel? And he says, I feel like I'm getting old. I feel like I'm in the last quarter of my life. I feel like I got a ton of to do, and I don't have any time to do it. That's how it makes me feel. Wow. I thought, Okay. <laughs> So the trick, and what I learned is, do not be intimidated by these people. Just keep going, <laughs> Lou that, Reed. That's a good story. Can I have another thing I want to ask you too? Where well, we didn't plan this at all. Mm-hmm. We have a little segment that just fell into place by accident called "Songs You Hate to Love," not "Songs You Love to Hate." That's too easy. These are the songs that. You know, you kind of know they're really bad, but you Ooh. love them anyway. Yeah, so you let's know, do ours. And your friends would, you know, make you feel embarrassed if they knew you liked this song. It's the one you sing in the shower in the car when no one's around. And I started this by suggesting a song that Tom found to be one of the most egregious pop songs in the no, history of the medium. The worst. Okay. Not one of. It's absolutely the but worst. But I, I, uh, I like it. It's called We Built This City. Oh, horrible. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but we didn't hear which one he liked oh. in response. Well, I like Afternoon Delight. I oh started vocal band. I, I like that song. I can't help it. Actually, I think this is a pretty good song, but I don't like to admit that I really love it because. But I find myself singing it all the time when I walk down the street. Trailer for sale or rent. <laughs> it's to let fifty cents. I'm a- means, yeah, that no one. Means. Okay, so we're King talking the road. Right. Yeah. There it is by song. Roger Miller. <laughs> well, you know what, though? That is a great song, and I actually think that people think that that song is cool. Okay, so, okay. So perhaps. Well, maybe yeah. it just doesn't work with my brand, is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Christopher and Tom. Okay, that was fun. Thanks, Lori, for dropping in. Lori's podcast is called Pondercast. Before we end, let's catch up with some music news for the week. Okay, first of all, the producers of a David Bowie biopic titled Stardust announced that principal photography would begin in June with musician and actor Jimmy Flynn going to be playing David Bowie. However, David Bowie's son, Duncan Jones, immediately criticized the production, saying it wasn't approved or supported by his family and would not include any of Bowie's music. Now, this is kind of interesting because I believe that not every biopic has to be authorized. Sometimes the best stories are told by people who are removed from the subject. So there's a little bit of a match going up, blanking match going on between the two camps. And um, we'll see how this shakes out because I don't think you necessarily need the blessing of the Bowie camp nor even the music to talk about Bowie's first visit to the United States, which is what this is about, including when he got treated very badly by some people in the southern part of the United States. So I think this could be quite good. Okay, earlier in the show, we began the show with ACDC. 
A letter written by late singer Bon Scott in 1978 has sold for $9,831, and that was last Thursday, so about 10 days ago. Scott wrote the letter to his girlfriend, Valerie, from a Hilton in Pittsburgh in August of 1978 while the band was on tour. That's, there you go, that's music news about ACDC. Also have some weird music facts about ACDC. Their song Thunderstruck has been used to help adapt the delivery of chemotherapy um, of chemotherapy drugs by scientists at the University of South Australia. There's something about that song that makes everything react in a certain way. That's odd. Another odd ACDC fact is that the U.S. military once used their music as torture. They tortured Panama's General Manuel Noriega during that time uh, to help get him to uh, to surrender. There you go. Music news on Famous Lost Words. Famous Lost Words is produced by my dear friend Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. Don't forget, the best way to support Famous Lost Words is to listen to past episodes, and you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or on Apple Podcasts. And also, you can follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, or on Twitter, at Famous Lost Pod. <laughs>